Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Get your Bibles open to John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 35 through to John chapter 2 and verse 12 this morning. Now, when it comes to becoming a Christian, many people think that to become a Christian, what you need to do is you need to take the proverbial leap of faith, that you come to the end of your facts, and then when you come to the end of your facts, you then take this leap of faith. But actually, biblical faith is actually evidential. What that means is that faith and facts are not in opposition to one another, but rather that when you discover who Jesus is, you then express saving faith in what you've discovered. And this is why John has actually written this gospel. He tells us that he's written this gospel so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in his name, you might have life. So if you're joining with us and you're here on Sunday mornings at City Reach and you're just sort of investigating the Christian faith, we don't want you to just check your brain at the door. We want you to come along and as we study, we're hoping that you will see the authenticity of what uh, John is teaching so that you will discover for yourself that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might believe in him and have life in his name. Now, you know, as we've been studying this Gospel, we have studied firstly um, the prologue, which is verses 1 to 18. Uh, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, he, he, he said that uh, the John's Gospel is quite different from the other Gospels in the New Testament. There are four Gospels or biography of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the other Gospels, this was Daryl Bock, he said that they're sort of like this, you, you sort of, they're ground up, you you, you read them, and as you read them, you read about the humanity of Jesus, and then you start to discover, you know, Jesus' miracles and what he did. And by the end, you then make the proclamation, he is the Son of God. So they're these ground-up sort of Gospels. But John, he begins his Gospel in a different way, Bock says. He says it's like top-down. Right from the very beginning, we get this insight that Jesus is the unique Son of God, one with the Father, the one through whom the Father created all things, the Word who became flesh. He is God incarnate. And it's interesting that the very first witness that John gives us is actually John the Baptist's testimony. You'll notice that down in verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John. Now, I know this can be quite confusing because we have two Johns here. We have John the Apostle who wrote this, and then we have John the Baptist. And John has already introduced John the Baptist as this man who was sent from God. He himself was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. And he introduces his testimony right here in verse 19. But this week, when I was studying this, I saw something really, really cool. All right? Let me show it to you. So John introduces the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the first day. The priests and the Levites, they come and they interrogate John and say, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, 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 no. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Then scan your eyes down to verse 29. It says, the next day. So we have the first day with John the Baptist. 
And then we have the next day, day two. And John the Baptist says openly, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then keep on scanning your eyes down to verse 35. We have the next day. So how many days is that, class? Three days. Three days. Good, good, good. You're with me? Yeah. Amen. Good. Good to hear. Amen. Three days. Good. Then we go down to verse 43 and it says what? The next day. So that's four days. And then we go over to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, on the third day. So that's three days after the fourth day. So when you add three and four together, you get what? Seven. You get a complete week. This is really fascinating, isn't it? Right at the very beginning of the gospel, John opens with the words, in the beginning, this hyperlink that links us right back to the book of Genesis, and then he gives us seven days. You've probably heard of the seven days of creation. Well, here we have the seven days of John, where John is revealing the identity of Jesus. And what's fascinating with this section is you have it opening in Genesis, Genesis opening it in John 1 verses 1 to 2, and it's creation. And then you have it ending this section in chapter 2 verses 1 to 12, with a wedding feast, right in the middle is seven days. And when you think about it, this is the whole story of human history. Human history begins with creation, and it's going to end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in between, what is the in-between time? It's about God revealing Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is fascinating, isn't it? You know, uh, John Lennox, a mathematician, uh, who's also a Christian, he says, isn't it great to be a Christian because you are part of this expansive story that begins in creation and ends with the restoration and redemption of all things through Jesus. He said, imagine being an atheist. An atheist, the atheist story is you came from nothing, you're going to nothing, you are actually nothing but a bunch of cells, and so life is actually meaningless. But for Christians, we have, we're part of a bigger story that fills us with purpose and meaning. It's amazing. And guess this. This is, this is really cool as well. Not only does John give us seven days, but over these seven days, guess what he reveals? He reveals seven titles of Jesus. How fascinating. You have Jesus is the um, Lamb of God. Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is obviously uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is fifthly the son of Joseph. Jesus is the King of Israel. And Jesus is the Son of God. So over these seven days, you have this revelation of Jesus and who he is. But also what you have over these seven days is not only a revelation of who Jesus is, but you also have a revelation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, all climaxing with the, with the first miracle, the changing of water into wine. And so what I want to look with us about is I want to look at this whole idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because I think, I think in our modern day church, I think in the modern day church, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus has sort of become a bit unclear and a bit muddy. And I think there's reasons for that. I think part of the reason for that, I was listening to someone this week, 
And they were saying that, uh, you know, moral courage has been redefined in our society. It used to be that a person of moral courage was a person who would sublimate their desires and their needs for the sake of others. And obviously, the greatest demonstration of moral courage in the last century was that whole generation that went off to the war to fight that great moral evil in Nazi Germany. They, they gave up their own desires and their own life in order to fight against a great moral evil. What, what moral courage did they demonstrate? But this author was saying that what has happened in the last 15 years is that moral courage has been redefined so that it's no longer, you're no longer a courageous person if you sublimate your desires and you, for the sake of others. But what it means to be a courageous person now is it means that you actually live out your desires and you become your authentic, true self. So, you know, a few years ago, we saw Caitlyn Jenner, this person, get Woman of the Year Award. And what courageous thing did they do? Well, they were just being true to themselves demonstrating their desires or following their desires. Now, you might ask, what has that got to do with discipleship? Well, one of the root words of disciple is the word discipline. And in order to follow Jesus, you are going to need to be disciplined. And at the heart of discipline is to say no to yourself so you can say yes to something in the future. And in the heart of being a disciple of Jesus means that you say no to yourself, you deny yourself, so that you can pursue him. But we now live in a culture that tells us to be what we want to be, to follow our desires, to be our true self. And through technology, and fueled by consumption, we're all about following our own path and making our own desires and being our own person. And yet discipleship is something different to that. So if you really want to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be countercultural. You're going to have to swim against the tide. But also, also, I think... Part of the struggle that we have in understanding what discipleship is all about is because of Christian culture, church culture. I mean, we use the term disciple or follower of Jesus all the time, and this word has sort of become a little bit of a cliche, disciple or follower of Jesus. So let me just give you a bit of the cultural context of what discipleship mean, meant back in the first century. You see, you may not realize this, but Jesus was not the first person to have disciples, and he wasn't the last person to have disciples. There was a whole culture of discipleship within Judaism. Rabbi Hillel, who lived before Jesus, he had 70 disciples. Rabbi Akiva, who lived after Jesus, he had five disciples, but he had thousands of people who followed him. And if Jesus stood up in a synagogue on Sabbath, and he read from the Torah, Odds are that the category, if you were a Jewish person living in Israel, odds are the category that you would file Jesus into would be that of a rabbi, that of a teacher. And there were plenty of rabbis who would go around in the first century and they would teach and they would give their yoke, their understanding of the Torah, their way of life. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my teaching upon you. And this whole concept of discipleship permeated the whole Jewish system of education. So if you were a young boy, you would go along to 
a Jewish school where you would learn from a rabbi and you would learn reading and you would learn writing and you would learn maths, but you would learn it all from the book. And in fact, the whole goal was by the age of 12 to have memorized the whole first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Aren't you glad that's not what we do nowadays to get people graduated from Sunday school? I mean, I find it difficult enough to read through those books, let alone memorize those books. This is amazing. And then what would happen is that most Jewish boys after the age of 12, they would then go on and they would then become apprenticeship, apprentices to their fathers and they would learn the family trade. And this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus, he went and was an apprentice to his stepfather, Joseph, and he became a carpenter. But the cream, get this, the cream of the crop, they would go on to another level of Jewish education where they would then learn further about the law and further about the prophets. And then after that, the very cream, the very top, the the magna cum laude at the end of that school would then be asked by a rabbi to become their Talmudim, their disciple. It was a position of privilege. Only the cream, only the cream, only the top people would be asked to be a Talmudim by a rabbi. Come, follow me. That sort of gives us a little bit of perspective on the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? Remember, he was like under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the top rabbis in Israel. So Paul was the cream of the cream of the cream. And this call to be a a Talmudim, a a student, a disciple of a rabbi, it was not like some of you are full-time students and, you know, you have, you know, days, you know, you probably go to university at least once a week or something like that, you know. Um, It's not like that. This this to be be a, a... a, a, a disciple, a student of a rabbi was a, a complete commitment. You would, it was 24-7. You would go live with your rabbi and you would, you would talk with your rabbi. You would sleep with your rabbi. And the whole goal was eventually you would start to imitate your rabbi, even look like your rabbi in, your, in the way that you, in your mannerisms and all, so that you would take on the teaching of your rabbi. It was a complete and total, total commitment to be a disciple. Well, with that in mind, let's now read the text. Look down in your Bibles in verse 35. It says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. See, John had disciples. Now, now get this class. I think we now understand maybe why the um, Pharisees sent priests and Levites to interview John. Because John was breaking all the rules. He, he appears in the wilderness preaching and he's taking disciples to himself. And those disciples are not like the cream of the cream. I mean, we read later that one of those disciples was Andrew, a fisherman. And probably the other disciple, just so you know this, is probably most commentators say was probably uh, John the Apostle. Because all the way throughout John's gospel, John keeps himself anonymous If he's going to refer to himself, he will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And verse 36, John looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. He'd already said that the previous day, so he says it again. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this 
and they followed Jesus. So they turned from being students of John, disciples of John, in apprenticeship to John, and they turned and now they were disciples of Jesus. Just as a little sidebar, it's one of the things that you see about um, John the Baptist is you see the great humility of John the Baptist. John's whole ministry was to point people to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And I love this. Later on, when John is asked what he feels about the fact that Jesus is now making and baptizing more disciples than him, you know what John says? John says, that's okay, because he must increase and I must decrease. Beautiful demonstration of gospel ministry is actually all about Jesus. It's about him being on display. But then we read this, verse 38. Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, if you didn't have that cultural context, this question would be quite an unusual question. But you see, what they're asking in asking Jesus, where are you staying? They're basically saying, Jesus, we want to be your disciples. We want to go and be with you. We want to follow you around. We want to join ourselves to you. See, I think the first thing that we learn about discipleship is discipleship is total allegiance. Total allegiance to Jesus. You see, often we water down what it means to be a disciple in the 21st century church. We think that it's just a course that you do or it may be a program that you go through. But actually, when Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples, he was saying, I want you to go and make people who are in complete allegiance to me, who see me as Lord of their lives, who, who now take me as being the one who defines for them their sexuality and their leisure and, their, and, their, and, and every other aspect of their life. You see, the call to be a disciple of Jesus is actually a call to leave everything and follow Him and give your complete allegiance to Him so that He becomes like the sun is the center of our solar system and everything revolves around Him. Now Jesus is at the center of your life and now everything revolves around Him. You see, the call to be a disciple of Jesus is not just about having some casual church attendance and having, you know, throwing some dollars in the plate. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is a 24-7 call. We don't just, Jesus is not just our hobby where we come and like other people, you know, on Sundays, they, they ride bikes or, or they do other things, play with radio controlled cars. Our, Jesus is not like a hobby like that. Jesus is actually the one who we are giving our complete allegiance to as Lord. We are in submission to Him. He is our master. We are following Him. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Look down in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I love this. What was the very first thing that Andrew did when he, after he discovered Jesus? 
He went and got his brother and he introduced him to Jesus. You know, the second aspect of what it means to be a disciple is you help others find Jesus. You help others follow Jesus. Found people help others find Jesus. Keep looking down, verse 43 in your Bibles. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nathanael is at first very skeptical of this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. Now, we don't really know why Nathanael was um, skeptical. You know, it may have been that, like, Nazareth is this little dinky city, and he was thinking, Nazareth? Can, can the Messiah come from that little dinky place? Or it may be that there was a bit of rivalry between Nathanael's city, Bethsaida, and Nazareth, uh, a little bit like how, you know, um, there's a bit of rivalry between Melbourne and Adelaide. Might have been like that. But the point is this, is that some of you might be here today and you have questions. And it's okay to have questions about Jesus. You know, you might have questions like, how can a good God um, permit evil and suffering in the world? You might have questions like, um, you know, if Jesus is truly the way, how can he be truly the way when there are millions of people who don't believe in him and believe in other ways? So, so you might have questions here today. And the, the interesting thing is, notice that Philip, what Philip does in response to Nathaniel's question, he just says to Nathaniel, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. You see, Jesus praises the intellectual honesty of Nathanael. And, you know, Jesus doesn't mind you asking your questions. But here's the thing I found. It's the thing I found is that when people come to Jesus... It's not because necessarily they have all their questions answered, but it's because they have met him. They've met Jesus. And so Nathanael says to him in verse 48, how do you know him? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we don't know exactly what Jesus saw Philip doing. He might've been up to no good. We don't really know, but whatever it was, it convinced Nathanael that Jesus was divine because Nathanael then says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, it's not wrong to have questions. And when you come, if you're coming into our community with a whole heap of questions about faith, you know, we want to try and seek to answer your questions. But you know, as I've said, I've found that most of the time when people become believers in Jesus, it's not like they get all their questions answered and then once they get all their questions answered, they then go, oh yeah, I, I now become a Christian. Rather what happens is they meet Jesus and then once they meet Jesus, those questions then become small 
as the identity of who he is becomes large in his thinking. Do you know, I still have questions. I still have intellectual questions. But they don't worry me so much because I have met Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And now when you meet Jesus, you can understand all of those other things. It's interesting, Carl put on his Facebook a couple of years ago, he put this post, he said, something like this, Carl, you might correct me later, but it was something like this. He was asking his family and friends, he said, what will it take for you to believe in Jesus? What, what will it take? What, what, what proof would I need to give you for you to believe in Jesus? And one of your family, I remember them saying, being really honest and saying, there would be nothing that you could say that would get me to believe in Jesus. You see, it's as if it's not about, it's not about actually satisfying your intellectual curiosity and having all your questions answered. It's actually about meeting a person. When you meet the person of Jesus... And he looks at you and he says, I know you. I know you. No one knows you more than Jesus knows you. And he's seen you in your private moments when no one else has seen you. You go, yeah, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. Well, look in verse 50. This is really interesting. I think Jesus was sort of saying this with a bit of a laugh at this point. (laughs) He says, uh, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that phrase there is also a phrase that goes back to an Old Testament story. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And he was a bit of a deceiver and he had deceived his brother Esau and Esau was very, very angry with Jacob and wanted to kill him. So Jacob had to flee for his life and he's running away for his life and he ends up in this place completely exhausted and he goes to sleep and God gives him this dream and in this dream, he sees this ladder and on this ladder, there are angels ascending and descending from earth to heaven and God himself is standing at the top of the ladder and God reaffirms to Jacob that he is with him, that he's present with him. And then Jacob, he labels that place Bethel, the house of God, the place where heaven and earth intersect. Later on, Bethel would become the place where the temple was built, the place where the presence of God would come, the place where heaven and earth would intersect. And do you notice, Jesus is saying, you are going to see greater things than these. In fact, you're going to see the place where heaven and earth intersects. And where do you think that place now is? That place is in Jesus. As John would say in the prologue, he would say, Jesus was the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. You see, one of the amazing aspects of following Jesus is that you always are discovering more about Jesus. One of the great privileges of, I'm excited about this, I'm hoping to get you excited. One of the great privileges about being a disciple of Jesus is you're always discovering more about Jesus. He says to to Nathaniel, you think this is great? You're going to see greater. You're going to see greater things than this. People, 
You think this is pretty good? Who thinks this is pretty good? All right, it's okay. But you are going to see greater stuff than this. You know, when I was in Sunday school, I used to think that, that heaven would be boring. Sitting up in, on a fluffy cloud, singing worship songs to Jesus for all eternity. But that's not what it's going to be like. For all eternity, we will be basking in the glory of the eternal Son of God. And we will never get to the end of His glory. Because His glory is an infinite glory. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 where it has the cherubim and seraphim? And they sort of fly around the throne of God. And they fly around and they sing, holy, holy, holy. And then they fly around again and they sing, holy, holy, holy. Now, can't they be more creative in their song choice? I mean, these guys write songs. Can't they write better lyrics than just holy, holy, holy? Well, the reason that they say that is because as they fly around the throne of God, they get a glimpse of God's glory and they fall down and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they fly around again, they get another glimpse of God's glory again. And they fly, sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty forever. We will be discovering the greatness of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus is you are on this journey of discovering more and more. To be a disciple means that you come and you what? You see. You come and you see. You come to Him and then you increasingly, your eyes are open to see more and more and more of Jesus. You can read the book of Romans a hundred times. And you can read it another time and get more out of it than the hundred times that you read. Because behind the, the, the written word is the living word, Jesus, who is revealing himself and his glory to us. It's one of the greatest privileges of being a disciple of Jesus. You discover more and more and more and more about Jesus. What an exciting adventure! All right, are you with me? Don't you love God's Word? Amen. Okay, now we're coming into chapter 2. We're coming into land the plain, and we're going to look at the wedding at Cana and the miracle of changing water into the wine. Now, as a, as, as a kid growing up at Sunday school, I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, changing water to wine. I would much rather Jesus be able to change water into soft drink, <laughs> being in Sunday school. But it does, doesn't, it, doesn't it seem like to you a little bit of an arbitrary miracle? Like, okay, so they run out of wine at a wedding and Jesus, just, he's going to just demonstrate his power by changing this water into wine. I'm certain that it would have kept the, you know, the people uh, from being ashamed. Of, you know, it would have ministered to them because they had run out of wine and to do that at a wedding would have been a source of shame in their culture. But that seems like what an arbitrary miracle. Now, this is further highlighted by the fact that John, at the end of his gospel, says that if you were to write books about Jesus, you wouldn't be able to fill up all the libraries in the world about, about Jesus. Jesus did so much stuff, which is just a hypo, hyperbolic way of him saying that Jesus did so many things, and the things that John chose to put into his gospel, he chose to select for a purpose. So this miracle was selected for an express purpose. So what is the purpose behind this miracle? Well, Jesus and his disciples, they go to this wedding. Jesus' mother says to him, they have no wine. 
Jesus says, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's a reference in John's gospel. You'll see this all the way throughout John's gospel. It's a reference to how eventually his hour will come and he will go to the cross. So that's, that's what that is. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus tells these servants to fill up these six stone jars used for Jewish purification rituals with water and then to take some of the water out of that and give it to the master of the, um, uh, the, master of the, the, yeah, of the feast. And so he, he, he drinks it and then he says in verse 10, everyone, who serves, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. So, so Jesus did, didn't just change water into wine. He made that wine the best wine, the best wine. And it says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, just an interesting thing before we go any further. Remember, there are seven days, seven titles of Jesus. How many signs do you think you're going to encounter in the Gospel of John? Seven, seven signs. Now, also, I just want to point out something to you, all right? It says, this is the first sign. All of that apocryphal literature that says that Jesus performed miracles as a child is a whole heap of rubbish. It's not true. This is the first time when Jesus performs a miracle. And what we've got to understand about the miracles that Jesus performed, he, his miracles were not just naked displays of his power. Who has seen um, the movie Evan Almighty? You've seen that movie, you know? And Evan is like, he's just given God-like powers and so he just uses his powers. This is not what Jesus is doing. When Jesus performs a miracle, what he is doing is he's showing and pointing to something specific. And what most commentators believe is that the wedding feast running out of wine is symbolic of how the whole Jewish system had come up bankrupt spiritually. And do you notice that Jesus, he asks that six stone jars from the Jewish rites of purification be filled up and the water is changed to wine. And this is symbolic of the fact that Jesus as Messiah is bringing about a new arrangement with God that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And wine in the New Testament is often associated with joy, and it's also associated with the Holy Spirit. And John has said in chapter 1 that there is one coming after me who I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I think that this miracle is not just some arbitrary thing that Jesus does to say, look at how cool I am, I can perform miracles. But rather, this is a demonstration that Jesus is bringing a new arrangement with God that people have where they will now enter into a new covenant relationship with God where God will pour out His Spirit upon people. And so to be a disciple of Jesus not only means that you give your total allegiance to Jesus, not only do you help others follow Jesus, not only is it about the adventure of discovering more about Jesus, but it's actually being transformed by Jesus in your inner being. Just as water was changed into wine, 
You are changed and transformed by the power and presence of Jesus. This is what makes Jesus and His discipleship so different from the rest of the rabbis who were travelling around. John said, I baptise you with water, but there is one coming after me. I can't even bow down and untie his shoelaces. He is going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And when He comes, there will be something different. You will be changed just as water was changed. It became different. It became wine. You will be changed by the presence of Jesus. See, Christianity is not just about right beliefs, but it's about being transformed in your heart by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that you become someone who is filled with joy inexpressible. Joy inexpressible. So when you look at these four things of discipleship, of what it means to be a disciple, how's your discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus going? Have you given total allegiance to Jesus? Are you helping others to follow Jesus? Are you on the, are you on the adventure of discovering more about Jesus? Are you coming day by day to Jesus to be transformed by Him from the inside out? Oh Lord, Help us to be true disciples of Jesus. You see, I know, I know, it was for me personally, it was a great source of joy when I woke up this morning and saw what had happened in our nation. I'll say that openly. I was praying for religious freedom, for my family, for our church. So it was was a moment of joy for me. You may have different convictions, that's okay. But even if the Lord stays his hand for another three or so years, what we need in this nation is not just laws to change, we need hearts to change. We need to be a revived church full of people who aren't fake disciples, who have actually been discipled by the culture around us, but who have been discipled by King Jesus, filled with His Spirit to take His Word regardless of the cost. I don't know what you think of Israel Folau, but I, I applaud that guy because he's standing by his convictions and standing up for Jesus. You know, So praise God, praise God for what he's been doing in our nation, but there is so much more to do. Let's be a people on our knees and be a people who are giving our complete allegiance to King Jesus as disciples of Jesus. Let me pray. Stand to our feet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we, 
We don't want to be discipled by our culture and, and give allegiance to a culture that is way, way off track. But we want to be discipled by you, King Jesus, because of the goodness of who you are. You have died for us and you have been raised from the dead for us. And we want to be people of moral courage, who true moral courage, who give up our desires and our life and follow you, Lord Jesus. And we want to be people who, who come every day and surrender our lives afresh to you, to be filled with your spirit so that we can live our mission for your glory and honor 